Welcome to episode 26 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And, you know, sometimes people work out so well, we just have, them, have to have them back right away. So we brought back one of the guests from last week for this week. Welcome back, John. Hello, hello. Went from talking about one of the craziest why is it even on this list stories of the entire podcast to one of the most i'm so glad it's on this list type of stories although i'm sure you and i are going to differ on it i'm happy to see it on the list okay yeah and this is one no we'll get into that later this is house of m so it's the eight issue mini series written by brian michael bendis penciled by olivier quapel inked by tim townsend rick magyar scott Hanna, and john dell Colored primarily by Frank Darmada, but Paul Mount stepped in for an issue. Lettered by Chris Eliopoulos, with assistant editors Stephanie Moore and Molly Lezer, associate editor Andy Schmidt, editor Tom Brevoort, all under editor-in-chief Joe Casada. Cover dates ranged from August to December 2005. Release dates ranged from June 1st to October 26, 2005. And it came in at number 26 in the countdown. So technical details out of the way. Shall we get into the plot synopsis before the significance, considering... Most of the continuity significance is the way this ends. Let's build, I guess, a little bit of a story so we can, because the, the significance kind of feeds into the build up to this story, as well as the outfall from this story or fallout from this story. This series kicks in, what, about a year and a half after Brian Michael Bendis had rebooted the Avengers. He had spent four issues demolishing one team. Did that story make the list? I feel like it did. Yeah, we've already discussed it. Yeah, that's right. I remember reading it. And, and, and yeah, okay, so yeah. And then he had his new Avengers going on. They started up the Mighty Avengers later as a parallel series. No, that hadn't happened yet. New Avengers was going on. And events from Disassembled with Wanda sort of set up where she is at the beginning of this story. She's a broken woman. You know, her powers led her down a very dark path in that story. And she's... She's in a very, very bad place emotionally and mentally. So it's it's almost like Disassembled and House of M make two halves of a saga for Wanda Maximoff that really, I don't know when we'll ever stop feeling the effects of these two stories. I mean, most of the effects that are directly resulted from this have gone, but I don't know. It just feels like Marvel was forever changed after after New Avengers started. To a large degree, yeah. And this is a piece of it. It also was playing into the fact that Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's run on Astonishing X-Men was going so well. I believe this was in the break between issues 12 and 13, or somewhere thereabouts. Yeah, if that's not when it was published, that's certainly when it was set. Because this is built on the cover as an Astonishing X-Men, New Avengers crossover. Not just X-Men and Avengers, but these new, revamped, hugely popular versions of the X-Men and the Avengers. Yep, that's definitely what this is. And when we discussed Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21 way back when, we said that when Joe Quesada came in as editor-in-chief, he had three main goals for Marvel Comics. One of them was to unmarry Spider-Man, which is why we talked about it in the Marriage of Spider-Man issue, the story where he was unmarried did not make the list. This deals with the second of the three, and the third will come up in, in a later podcast. One of his three major goals was to make Being a Mutant special again. Because he felt that there were just too many mutants in the Marvel Universe, like everyone and their and their kid was a mutant, 
It didn't feel that special, and it didn't feel like a small minority anymore. And he felt it had to feel like a small and special minority for a lot of the allegories that they're telling to really work. So this story addresses that purpose head on. One of those three goals that Joe Quesada had is accomplished right here and now. Yeah, and, and this this story, it's it's funny because it's it's House of M, which is next men title sort of mostly. I feel that this is primarily an Avengers story with X-Men in it, but then it has huge, massive ramifications for the X-Men story right out of the gate coming out, spawning miniseries and subtitles and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, to be perfectly honest, the solicits to this particular story didn't appeal to me that much. So to get into a little bit of my personal history, I picked up the trade paperback after the fact because it had such a broad impact. So you didn't read this as it came out? No, I didn't read this as it came out. I read it after the results of this were common knowledge. Well, it's not exactly a, a title that grabs you. I mean, House of M. That's a, that's a title that only has meaning within the story and basically none at all outside of the story. You know what? Why don't we make it nice and coherent and go through a, an issue-by-issue synopsis okay. of the plot? I like and that. Go from there. Synopsizing plots are always good. Is always good. Yes. Because synopsizing is singular, even though plots are plural. That is true. All right. So issue one of eight is, you know, introduction of where the Scarlet Witch is now and how she's coping with the fact that she used to have kids kind of, sort of, but now doesn't. For more details on that, go back to the original West Coast Avengers story where it happened or Avengers Disassembled. But we see that Professor Xavier and Magneto have been trying to help her heal her psychological issues and they're not succeeding. It's getting harder and harder. And this is a mutant who has the power to rewrite reality. We go from there to the Avengers and the X-Men getting together for a meeting to discuss and decide the fate of Wanda Maximoff. Her brother Quicksilver, Pietro Maximoff, actually Pietro Django Maximoff, is not terribly thrilled with that. And he's not happy. He has a bit of an argument with Magneto about it. But Magneto's saying, like, what else would we do? You know what? They Maybe killing Wanda is the only way to protect the rest of the planet. Because she is very powerful and very unstable. Meanwhile, the Avengers and the X-Men have a rather heated discussion and rather pointed discussion about whether or not they should kill the Scarlet Witch, with a couple of them, namely Spider-Man and Captain America, saying there has to be another way. And some of the predictable other ones, you know, your Emma Frosts, your Wolverine, saying, well, maybe there's not. So or at the very least, maybe we can't find it in time. They head down to Genosha to face Wanda. There's a very bright flash, and Peter Parker is our point-of-view character at this point. And then Peter Parker wakes up to hear the sounds of a crying baby, and there is a wedding photo on his night table of Peter Parker marrying Gwen Stacy. So clearly, reality is just not what it used to be. We get into issue two, which is really establishing the status quo. Yeah, it's essentially a whole bunch of one or two page scenes of various characters. You're, you're, you're getting exposed to this new reality that's been written by seeing where everybody is. The last of whom is Wolverine, because we sort of end on a cliffhanger with what he witnesses. But it's, 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 it's not a whole lot happens in this issue. It's just, here's a bunch of status quos. Yeah. For the key points here, Steve Rogers never took the, sil the super soldier serum. So he's what you'd expect from a guy that age. <laughs> he's the Steve we have now. Yeah. Uh, we have Carol Danvers as the single most popular superhero in this universe using the name Captain Marvel. Her status in this story is what relaunched the character as Ms. Marvel. Yes. 
she was Captain Marvel here. When this is all said and done, she remembers this alternate reality. And being that superhero, that's what launches the Bendis and Brian Wood. Miss Marvel that starts with a giant size and lasts about 50 issues, I believe. Right. And sort of rejuvenated that character after she sort of meandered for so long. Yeah. You know, Kitty Pride is a teacher. Scott and Emma are married agents of some kind. Most of these people aren't even using superhero secret identities. Although Luke Cage does have some sort of underground criminal empire thing going, but we find out it's not so much criminal as it is just, you know, trying to do the status quo. Because this is a reality where mutants are much more common and the non-mutant population is oppressed. Yeah, it's 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 a classist society with the reverse of what we normally think of as Marvel, where norms are norm and men mutants are the feared and hated subclass. Yeah, and there's a few other key points for where these characters are. The most important one going forward is that Wolverine is an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., effectively Nick Fury in this universe, and he's you know, romantically involved with Mystique. He's got Toad and Jessica Drew and others working for him. But most importantly, he remembers everything that ever happened to him. So he doesn't just remember the way the world used to be. All of his memories pre-Weapon X that he had lost as an adult, he now remembers as well. And so he's the everyone else has full memories of their life in this world. He has two sets of memories. And it, it, he, he finds it kind of odd because they, they don't reconcile. Yeah, and he is he's the only one we've seen so far with two sets of memories. There soon will be more. There is another that's unrevealed. Issue three goes through him trying to cope with this and having enough of a conversation with Mystique for him to realize, yeah, it's just him. And he goes AWOL from S.H.I.E.L.D. by jumping off the helicarrier. We find out that essentially the most powerful person on the planet is Magneto, and he's the ruler of the House of Magnus. So Wolverine naturally assumes that he's behind all of this. He goes to try and recruit Professor Xavier, but Xavier hasn't lived in X-Mansion for years, so he has no idea where to find him. It's a very Back to the Future Part 2 scene where he sneaks into the bedroom of the wrong house, or the right house with the wrong people in it. Yep. Which I just recently watched because October 21st, 2015. Oh, yes. Yep. So then the rest of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents show up to bring Wolverine in because he's got a tracker. Cloak appears in this universe, so he is one of the few superpowered individuals that still has his powers and uses that same alternate identity and he brings wolverine in and that's when we find out that luke cage's team is really a resistance group and hawkeye is alive after having been dead since and not just believed dead but actually dead since the uh disassembled storyline yes so hawkeye was dead as a direct result of the scarlet witch's actions issue four we find out that magneto is not just the ruler of the universe but he's the patriarch of a family that includes grandkids Wolverine tells Luke Cage what he's doing and why he's doing it, even after they take out the tracking device in the back of his neck, which is something he told them to do, now that he knows it's there. But it's too late. The Sentinels show up. They save a girl named Layla Miller, who appears here for the first time. And she knows stuff. She does, yep. She will later become a big part of Peter David's X-Factor run. Here, she is the other character who remembers the other universe, and she's also a mutant, and her mutant power is to help others remember the way things were. And I have to wonder, just as a tangent here, because I don't know if it's how it would tie into later conversation, but I do wonder if Layla Miller is a character that Peter David saw, liked, and wanted to use, or if he was at all part of the conversation of her creation. I have no clue, but it's one of those things I wonder. I don't know, because given the two of them, Bendis is very much about collaborating and working with others in the universe. You can't write the titles he's done and the events he's done if you're not willing to sort of open the doors and work with others to help make their stories better, too. I could see it going either way. And I actually, I 
X Factor by David is one of those things that I really, 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 really want to read and just haven't done yet. So although I have a bay idea of the outline of Layla Miller's course in that book, I haven't read how she gets introduced in that book and then, you know, age and all the other things. So Nor have I. But that's essentially issue four and even somewhat of issue five with, you know, Emma Frost helping explore this. It's really recruiting the team that they're going to have on their side. So issue six or issue five, sorry, is pretty much about them taking Layla Miller around to the heroes they could find, including Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, Kitty Pride, Daredevil, She-Hulk, who are an item in this, a number of these other superpowered individuals, and just waking them up to their memories one at a time. And Peter Parker's conversion, for lack of a better word, is one of the highlights of the issue. He gets a variant cover where the shaved, very tan, super rock star Peter Parker Spider-Man finds out about his other life. And so you have the life that he has and the life that he would have had, and they all come crashing in on him, and he is absolutely traumatized by this experience. Oh, utterly. And that's one of my favorite Peter Parker and Wolverine moments is the conversation that they have on the rooftop when Wolverine gets him through this. You know, he's saying, Peter's saying, please, please tell me I've snapped. Just tell me it's me. It's all in my head. Just tell me I can deal with it. That I can handle. Tell me this isn't really happening. Wolverine's just sorry. And Peter realizes he's got a great life and he's got to lose it all. And Wolverine's just, yeah, we got a lot to do. Could you get it together? <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this is one of those times which kind of is interesting in light of last episode. Peter says that I'm going to kill them with my bare hands. Magneto and his stupid daughter. I'm not going to be able to stop myself. And Wolverine's like, you won't have to because I'll have done it already. But Peter is not dealing with this well. No. So then the issue is more regrouping and getting ready to head to Genosha with this team. You know, they find out Steve Rogers is not in a position to help in this universe. And their goal is to find Professor X and wake him up because they figure with Professor X on their side, they can take on Magneto. And the issue ends with Magneto in Genosha looking at the Xavier Memorial Garden. He died so Genosha could live. So the whole quest to find Xavier appears to be uh, dead before it starts. Yes. Only these guys don't know that. So issue six, when they're using telepathy and various powers to, you know, redivert shield helicarriers, while, you know, Dr. Doom is showing up in Genosha. No mask. His face is perfectly intact. Professor Allen must be cheering at home. <laughs> you know, he's just a political dignitary. Meanwhile, this team is getting it together and figuring out what they're going to do and how they're going to take these guys on. They launch their multi-pronged attack while everything is going down. And, you know, we see Quicksilver in there defending the family. Meanwhile, Cloak, Layla, and Emma Frost are the three that are supposed to find Professor Xavier, and they find his grave. And just when they think it's all lost, Cloak travels into the grave and back and says, Xavier's not here. It's not over yet. There's no body in that grave. So we have some hope here. And then issue seven is where it all really comes together. You know, we get the final battle. We get Doctor Strange talking to the Scarlet Witch, who's still very unbalanced. And yes, she definitely made this reality. But it's in this conversation we find out that this wasn't Magneto's plan. It was Quicksilver's. Figure, just give everybody everything they ever wanted, and they'll leave us alone, and they won't come kill you. This entire reality exists so that Quicksilver doesn't see his sister get hurt. It's an interesting uh, uh, bit of storytelling because we see a scene from issue one where the heroes were coming to take care of Wanda, Quicksilver and Magneto were arguing about it. And in issue one, we left that scene and continued our story. Here we find out 
the next bit of Quicksilver's life. He argues with Magneto. They end very emotionally. And then he goes and tells his sister what they could do. And she makes it happen. She's mm-hmm. not exactly keen on the idea, but she makes it happen. And when all this is happening, it all comes to fruition. And the Scarlet Witch realizes what kind of damage is being done because her friends won't accept this new reality. She blames it on mutants. And this ends with her in tears saying, no more mutants. In a, in a, in a panel that has probably been reprinted and republished and reused 75,231 times. Yeah, this is on so many recap pages of anything involving mutants after that, or the the new mutants, or the new Avengers, sorry. And then there's another great flash, and then we get to issue eight, which is establishing the new status quo for the Marvel 616, which is largely like it was before. We see that Layla Miller is a viable character in that one. Most of the world does not know anything has happened or why things have happened, aside from the fact that all of a sudden, a whole lot of people who used to be mutants aren't. And like all but some 200. Yeah, it officially came out later. There's a number that the 198, there's 198 still confirmed classified mutants. There's a few more who weren't on that list, such as Typhoid Mary, who showed up in Avengers Academy. Wolverine retained all of these memories. So he now remembers that he is James Howlett, which is something that the readers learned from origin, but they said the character would not learn for some time unless it was a significant story or it would be a major event. And Wanda changed history so that he always had bone claws. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Instead of yeah. getting the claws as a result of Weapon X, he always had them. Yeah. Well, that had already been established in Origin. I thought Origin came. I thought Origin came out of this. No, Origin had already been published, so the readers already knew he was James Howlett, but Wolverine did not. Oh, okay. It was about three or four years prior to that, and even prior to that, Fatal Attractions established the Bone Claws in the nineties. As something that he didn't understand. He's like, well, hey, what do you know? I still have claws. Got to figure that one out. Right. My understanding is that the fatal attractions established that there was bone under the metal, but there was still the understanding that Weapon X had put them in there. Maybe I'm maybe. Now, I'll admit that my Wolverine knowledge is spotty at best, much like Wolverine's own knowledge of himself until this story. Yeah, I read and recorded the podcast about Fatal Attractions about two weeks ago. Okay, I'll believe you. I'm behind on my reading. Yeah, no conclusions were drawn. He pops the claws in that one, and he's like, well, what do you know? I still have them. Got to figure that one out. Okay. So it could be that that's what they determine later, but at the time that the sixth issue of Fatal Attractions concludes, he does not understand why he has bone claws. Okay, so the Fatal Attractions must have been a... I guess that's where the retcon starts, because... In the 80s, they did establish that he got the claws at some point in life and did not have them as a child, and that's been rewritten. So Wanda didn't do it, but the 90s did. Okay. Yeah, marketing department put it out to reader vote. If Wolverine loses the medal, should he still have claws? And the readers voted yes, so he did. Okay, reader retcon, yay! And then, as issue 8 progresses, we do find that, as we said, a lot of mutants have lost their powers. Including some headliners. Yeah, but only a couple of headliners. At least as far as we know at this point. Because, you know, most of the X-Men involved in this story retain their powers. Bobby Drake did not, and Magneto did not. So neither of those characters have their powers at the end of it, and Hawkeye is still dead. And it's not said in this issue, but another headliner that's quickly established as having lost their powers is the Blob. Yeah. And there's a number of others. There was a whole New Warriors run that was all mutants who lost their powers, such as Beak and whatnot. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, the, there's there's no evidence of Hawkeye still being alive... There's actually a newspaper with him still dead. And there's evidence that, you know, the Scarlet Witch is finally happy and lost out somewhere in the world. They don't know where she is. And that's something that 
will be left there until I believe Avengers the Children's Crusade. I took this as her having the life she had before Magneto found her and her brother. She's living in an Eastern European village with a rustic, what we might think of as old-fashioned lifestyle. That and, and that all of her life that she's had as a superhero and mutant, she no longer needs that in her life anymore. Yeah, I think it went from her initial attempt to rewrite the world in House of M was to give everyone what she thought they wanted, and they proved that they wanted the reality back. So this ends with her giving everyone else their reality back, and she gets what she wants. Right. Uh, we, we should probably mention the little tease at the end, since really the tease here has the most long-lasting effects, which is... Um, it's it's more metaphysics than, than science at all, but all the energy, the energy of thousands of mutants, it didn't all just disappear. Where did it go? Sir Isaac Newton's third law of physics, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So I'm asking, what will be the reaction? And we see a picture of the globe with a, a bright light of fire coming out from around the side of it, like the sun might do if it were peeking out, but the mm-hmm. implication is more. It is. So that is the, the comic in a nutshell. And I think the significance and the impact on continuity has been covered already. This dramatically reduced the mutant population in the Marvel Universe. If you are reading any X-book whatsoever, there is a very clear before, during, and after House of M. Yeah. Even other books, like the Hulk tied in, even though Hulk was not really a player in the story, but there was actually a pretty good story of what the Hulk was doing in that reality. The only evidence in in House of M that Hulk exists is... Wolverine's memory of him, but that's from the 616 universe, and the fact that Jennifer Walters is the She-Hulk, so if you're familiar with her origin, you would expect the Hulk to be out there somewhere, too. Now, I don't know the tie-ins for this, except I have read the Captain America issue. He had one issue tie-in, and I have read the issues of the Pulse that tied in, because I was on a Jessica Jones kick way back when. But other than that, I've never gone and sought out. It's one of those things I've wanted to do and just never have done. I've got the Git Corp DVD ROM of the entire event. I've only read those in the Hulk. Um, they revisit House of M. Like they they kept going back to this well a few times in the in succeeding years. So there are even tie-ins, I believe, well after the fact. Uh, I think House of M New Avengers is one. I could be wrong. Yeah, there are a few of them. Earth five eight one six three has had a few revisitations to it over the period, but. Yeah, the, the GitCorp DVD-ROM, at least, just includes those that were contemporary at the time that this was published. So it came out you know, within a couple of months of the trade paperback, and that's about it. So it does not include those miniseries down the road. It just includes all the House of N tie-ins that came out while these eight issues were coming, or shortly before and after. A moment for the awesomeness that was GitCorp DVDs. <sighs> Do you mind if I tell my how I came to this story story? Not at all. Okay, so... My return to comics, superhero comics, was a result of the Iron Man film in 2008, which directly ties into a later episode we're going to do about Secret Invasion. But when I was reading Secret Invasion, uh, that's where I, I came back into comics right as that was going on. I was working at a help desk where a lot of times I spent waiting for the next call to come in. So I decided that one of the things I could do to wait for the next call to come in was um, get get Corp DVDs and other digital subscription services and read a lot of Marvel back issues from just the recent years so I could get my handle on the universe. So um, Secret Invasion took me back to Civil War, which took me back to House of M, which took me back to uh, Disassembled. And that's where I started. I started at Disassembled and started reading forward the Avengers-related comics. And I got to this story and I was absolutely blown away 
by what they had done here. You know, there's there's a thing that um, gets said. I think you said it last week, Blaine, that, you know, whenever you're 10, pop culture, when you're 10, 11, 12 years old, that's the sweet spot. Everything you you experience at that age is everything you're chasing for the rest of your life. And for me with comics, a lot of it was what I experienced in 2008 in the latter part, the latter part of the first decade of the 2000s with my return to comics is what I think of as awesome comics. This was one of those stories and I really connected with it because although Spider-Man's not a huge player in it, it's obvious that the events have a huge impact on him in the story. Mm-hmm. And Spider-Man's always been my big guy when it comes to Marvel. This inspired a love for Carol Danvers that continues to this day. The story inspired a love for Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, and a huge interest in her history that I'm still reading and pursuing and exploring today. I read it a couple years after the fact, three years after the fact, but I read it as a new reader who didn't really know anything about it or what it was going to do or what was going to happen to it. So um, really, really big impact on me as an early returning comics reader. Yeah, I can see that. For me, as I said, having been spoiled on the ending before reading it may have had sort of a, a bit of an undermining effect on how much I enjoyed it. I also found that just because they are, you know, changing the universe, I think something in the way it was structured is part of what put me off. Because as we said, issue one is about the conversation, what do we do with the Scarlet Witch? And then they act. It's a lot of establishing the current status quo. And then there's the inciting incident in the second half. The second issue is, here's the new status quo. The eighth issue is, here's the new status quo. So we've got two and a half issues out of eight establishing some type of status quo and showing the implications. And then was so much of the middle as an alternate continuity, it could be because of my own predisposition. Because I wasn't reading this because I said, hey, this story sounds cool. I was reading it because it's like, okay, apparently that story is important to continuity. I should go read it. And because so much of it happens in this alternate universe, it turns out I actually wasn't missing that much because the key points that she rewrote universe, said no more mutants, Carol Danvers was inspired to become something different, Wolverine got his memory back, and, you know, everybody else, the only ones who know exactly what happened the day on the M day when the mutants lost their powers, were the people who were physically present, was already recapped in all the other books. You know what this is, Blaine? This is Flashpoint. Yep. Or I should say Flashpoint is this, which which is which yep. is not to say the Flashpoint's a deliberate effort to copy it, but they are exceedingly similar story structures and effects on continuity although of course flashpoints was much more extensive but yeah it's 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 a similarity i had never considered before and i can see your point i don't know that bendis events have the best structure to them and we're going to get more into that with the secret invasion episode because i think that suffers from just some structural problems as well But this, you're right, there's a lot to this story that is simply setting up stuff. And in the case of issue two, it's setting up stuff that ultimately is not going to matter. I would have enjoyed it more if that series of two-page vignettes introducing us to the new status quo for these characters had been spread out when Layla Miller, who to me feels like the MacGuffin, right? She's the character created because they need someone who can do this and turn the old memories back on had those two-page vignettes and establishing the status quo been the two pages right before the team catches up with that person. I think that would have helped me because it would have felt like we're moving forward. It's not just, here's the lay of the land. Like, Had we started with Wolverine in issue two, seen his escape, 
and hooking up with Luke Cage's Avengers there. And then seeing issue two spread out over issues three, four, and five, as it is now, and restructure it that way, that I would have found more engaging because it would have felt like there was some more forward motion. To me, half of issue one feels like there's no forward motion, but that's going to happen in any miniseries event. If you're not establishing the status quo, a portion of your audience is going to suffer. If you were to jump in on Flashpoint with just with issue one, it would be confusing if you didn't know what status quo was being rewritten. Anytime you're doing an alternate universe thing, you are probably better off saying, this is what came before, so people can understand the magnitude of the change. So I, I get that that needs to be there. I'm No problems with that in issue one. It's just when it's immediately followed by an entire issue of new status quo, especially when issue one ends by putting Peter Parker as our perspective character. He's one of the active members of the conversation in Avengers Tower about whether or not they should kill her. Once we get to Genosha, we're seeing everything through the eyes of Peter Parker. When the white flash happens, Peter Parker's face is the only one on the page. And then it ends with Peter married to Gwen Stacy, and then he does not appear whatsoever in issue two. Wolverine becomes the focal character, and that, I don't think, was properly set up. And I, I as a Spider-Man guy, I liked that focus on Spider-Man. I liked the, you know, the oh my gosh, gobsmack feeling of seeing him married to Gwen Stacy and, and getting up with kids. <laughs> but you're right, as a story structure thing, I think it would, the story would have been better served had issue one gone out on Logan waking up next to Mystique. Mm-hmm. Because that's the story we're telling. That's the House of M story that's getting told is Logan going around and using Layla Miller to recover all of his friends and save the day. And so if that's the story you're going to tell, mm-hmm. then tell that story. Yeah, absolutely. And I listen to the Writing Excuses podcast. And one of the things that they regularly talk about is if you're starting writing, you give it to proofreaders and say, what promises do your readers feel that you're making? And if you're leaving those promises unkept, it's going to feel dissatisfying. So either you restructure so it doesn't feel like you're making that promise or you keep that promise or you deliberately break it in a way that the reader should find enjoyable, right? You still address what was promised, even if you go a different direction. To me, this feels like issue one was promising Spider-Man as our focal character, and that didn't happen. Right. So it, it felt like almost a bait and switch when we see all these new status quos, and then, oh, now Wolverine's in the driver's seat. So after that, when I first started reading issue three for the first time, I wasn't convinced we were going to start with Wolverine. And then when we did, it's like, okay, when is Peter Parker coming back? Because it felt like he should have been a bigger player than he was. Now, to be honest, I've heard nothing but rave reviews about the House of M Spider-Man miniseries that shows this version of Peter Parker and what was going on in his life. The one problem I've heard is that there's not really a place in the House of M narrative for it to fit, that the events don't really interlock the way they should. Other than that, I agree. I've heard nothing but good things about that story. Yeah. So that is one of the ones that I'm going to get around to reading at some point. I keep telling myself that anyway. Right. And we keep getting older and not reading all the comics we want to read. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but to me, that's it. I mean, the impact that this had is undeniable. I just, to me, it felt like it was promising one thing and delivering another. Okay, I can see that. It's one of those situations where, like Man of Steel, and, I, and, and you know, this is not going to be the Man of Steel podcast, but that is a film that I can see technical flaws with as, a, as the way it's constructed. But as a Superman story, I love it. And it may be that that's the case here, although I hadn't really thought about the, uh, the, the, the difficulties in the way this story is constructed until you started pointing some of them out. It might just be, like I said, the particular writer that we had. 
but I don't know. I, I feel like this story, it just, everyone's life gets rewritten. Wanda Maximoff has altered all of history. And, you know, that, that ties back into the whole thing from, from Disassembled, where Doctor Strange is like, chaos magic? I don't even know what that is. And I know magic. And here she's rewriting the entire uh, history. And then we find out at the end that she didn't even really want to do it. That she did it because Quicksilver <laughs> said that that would make everyone leave her alone. And she could have what she felt like she needed. She felt like she needed a reconnection to her kids. Yeah. And like I said, I can see that, but I just feel, okay, this is going to be more negative. Or it's going to come across as more negative than I'm intending it. It feels like the second Michael Bay Transformers film, where they spent a big chunk of the middle carrying around the AllSpark, hoping that when they pass this MacGuffin by the other Transformers, they're going to learn what they need to learn. Except instead of the AllSpark, you've got Layla Miller. Mm-hmm. I would have preferred it had they gotten the band together in a more structured way. So instead of spending an entire issue just on the status quo, have that intermixed with later issues. And I would have preferred it if they didn't have that magic MacGuffin of Layla Miller. If instead of that, Luke Cage had said, you know what, Wolverine? I think you're nuts. I don't think that what you're saying is real. But I like the idea of a world where homo sapiens are not an oppressed minority anymore. And I agree that addressing the House of M and taking them down will make that world come about. I would like the idea if they agreed with his goals, but the people he had on his side didn't believe that it was a rewritten world and they still worked for the same goals. At least not until they get to the telepath who says, you know what, he honestly believes it. And then maybe throw out some doubt. I can dig that. I think that if we had had the status quo, Layla Miller revelation reaction thing with as many characters as we got, it would have felt more dragged out and more redundant. I mean, I'm not sure if it'd been better or worse, because as it is, you have an issue that's nothing but establishing shots. And you have two issues yeah. of Layla Miller going around and talking to everybody. Yeah, we could have had, I mean, with Layla Miller going around talking to everybody, we could have seen a couple of the key ones, like, you know, Emma Frost and Cyclops first, because the way Cyclops reacts is great. Mm -hmm. I do like the way Scott Summers reacts. And then a lot of the rest where it's one page where you see their status quo, and then their eyes glow green, and then the next page where they see their status quo and the eyes glow green. We could have gotten more that meaningful That could have been stuff. a two-page spread with just little heads surrounding Layla Miller with all their eyes glowing. Right. And then, okay, these are the people that we brought on board. These are the people who understand now and do this thing in four or five issues, like the four-issue Siege miniseries that Bendis does later. It could have been a much quicker in-and-out kind of story because a lot of what they had, it, I get that he was excited by this alternate universe, and clearly a lot of fans were too. Otherwise, it wouldn't have spawned all those miniseries. Right. But a lot of these pages seem to be establishing this universe for the sake of establishing this universe. And it's a, it's, it, it's a tricky thing with a story like this. And I think, uh, there, again, we get back to parallels with Flashpoint. You are asking your audience to invest in a universe that's going to be, not to make the pun, but a flash in a pan. It's This universe is not here to stay. And yet you want your audience invested in it because it's an eight-issue miniseries. So it's always a tricky thing. And you're right. I don't think they do it the best way possible here. But I, I, I personally, and it's just, you know, our opinions differing, I did enjoy what we got. I wonder if we could just talk about some of the characters and, and how things were changed for them. I'm a big Captain America fan, but he is so such the antithesis to everything that the House of Magnus world stands for. A human being who is powered to the point of human perfection. Or depending on what area you're talking about, you know, superhuman perfection, but you know, still. And yet the House of Magnus world, what is it? 52183? 58163. 58163 is all about mutants and powered, you know, I guess DC would call them metahumans, 
they are the upper echelon and the normal humans are downtrodden. And so to have a, a person who's the picture of normal humanity taken to its best point, that would just fly in the face of all of it. It would. And that's part of the issue I have is everybody else who's been close to Wanda that she's cared about has gotten everything they've ever wanted. Right? Wolverine got the respect and duty of Nick Fury plus all of his memories. Carol Danvers became a powerful and respected superhero. Jessica Drew became the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent that she was gunning for back in her Marvel Spotlight days. Yeah. Steve Rogers, I don't think he wanted to be a regular Joe schmuck. And that particular question, it may very well have been explored in his one-issue tie-in. I just have no memory of how that story went. Uh, maybe I should have reread it before this. I did like your mention of Jessica Drew, though, because like Carol Danvers, uh, this led to a big rejuvenation in her character, which had already started through the New Avengers stuff. But Brian Michael Bendis loves him some Jessica Drew, and she had been a nobody up until this era started getting off the ground, or, or had mm -hmm. devolved into a nobody, because she started out as pretty, uh, you know, with her own series and everything, but... Yeah, she didn't seem to have a lot to do between the end of her series and the start of New Avengers. And she didn't get to be Alias, which was the plan, so there's that. Yeah, yeah. so there's just... Yeah, I mean, I there are moments I enjoy. As I said, I one of my all-time favorite conversations between Spider-Man and Wolverine is on that rooftop, mm -hmm. when Peter realizes what he can have, but it's not right to keep it. And Wolverine's like, you know, it is almost like the ultimate buddy moment, but Wolverine, he respects the guy, and he's saying, yeah, you know what? You don't have to worry. You're not going to compromise your principles. You're not going to kill these people because I'll already have them dead. Just, you know, come and watch my back while we go there. Okay? <laughs> right. That's really the tone of it. That's a really nice touch. As I said, I really love the way he wrote Scott Summers here. Mm -hmm. When he gets his memory back and he's like, okay, this is definitely, you know, this cannot stand. Here's the plan. And that to me is Scott Summers when he's written well. Cyclops has been written badly far too often from about the, the launch of X Factor on when they, you know, made him a horrible, horrible husband for the sake of the editorial story of getting these five characters back together again. Whereas here, this is the Scott Summers that I like. He's not the callous, uncaring guy that a lot of people have described him as or written him as. He's not uncaring. He's just able to control his emotions well enough to say, okay, looking at the big picture, yes, making this move will screw over my best friend, but it will make the entire world a significantly better place so I guess I'm going to have to screw over my best friend and deal with the guilt. And that's kind of what he's in. He's like, okay, this world is wrong. Even though it's better for the mutants and everything we've always wanted, this is not the right world. So let's go give it up and turn it back into what it was and try to win this fight in a healthy way. The Spider-Man connection is one that... Now, I'll, I'll, I'll conf... rather than speak out of ignorance, let me ask. Have you read Spider-Man from this era? Yeah, I've read every issue of Amazing up to Spider-Verse. Okay, so... Did this have, I mean, when you finished reading this, could you go over to Amazing and see a uh, an emotional fallout from this in Spider-Man's life? Not dramatically. No, there's, he's like, oh man, it's rough. And then they moved on. And that's something I can respect from a writer's point of view. But from a reader's point of view, I really feel like this event should have had some major fallout for Spider-Man's emotional life. And and it just didn't happen. So that that is a problem that I have. But that's not, that's not the fault of the story, House of M. It's just, you know, a problem with the surrounding ways it was dealt. Yeah. And that's not, that's not just true of Spider-Man. That's largely true of all of the Avengers or all of the new Avengers. Aside from Wolverine in the X-Books, we didn't even really see a big impact 
on Wolverine in the new Avengers, which is odd to me since that was also written by Bendis. That is odd. I guess I guess really the only direct fallout it had was Carol Danvers decided to be a superhero again. Yeah, we had that. We had the reduction in the number of mutants and we had Wolverine's memories returning to it. Yeah, him. I'm sorry, direct fallout as in like an individual person's life. Yeah. So yeah. obviously for the for the Marvel world at large, there's there's a huge impact. But um as far as remembering this world and those memories having an effect on somebody's life. Carol Danvers decides to be Ms. Marvel again, and we get that amazing Brian Wood series. Yeah, and we get Wolverine Origins by Daniel Way, where he's going back and dealing with things that he now remembers. Okay, so that's the series that spun out of this. I thought, okay, okay. That's that's my understanding. I haven't read it. I, I read a lot of it. Um, I read a lot of the issues that preceded Dark Avengers, but it, it's been a while, and I don't know enough about Wolverine to have gotten enough out of it. But I liked what I read. That's something I should probably get around to reading. I believe it's on Digital Unlimited. Well, I've been listening to the podcast that goes snicked as I listen to the Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men show. So Rachel and Miles give me a, a soap opera, humanist philosophy look at the X-Men's history. And then the podcast that goes snicked gives me a zoom in on Wolverine and a Wolverine fan's view of the X-Men and Wolverine's life. So... That's been my my companion through my reading of Wolverine. Okay. Plugs for those shows. No charge. All right. Well, they deserve to be plugged. I've I've actually tried to plug Rachel and Miles on here before, but they don't have a promo spot. I definitely would have dropped it in when you we were talking about any X-Men related stories <laughs> with guests that don't have their own shows. Oh yeah, and, and we will be talk we will be mentioning them a bit when we get to the Dark Phoenix saga as well. That we will. And uh, X-Men God Loves Man Kills. Oh yeah, but I'm not here for that one. All right. So next week could probably Check a look and see if we can explore any deeper meanings or, you know, messages, morals, and meanings in the section of the podcast that's so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that I highly recommend everyone listen to. They've been doing great stuff over there. So is there anything we could take away from this, anything that we've learned or any morals or meanings that are coming forward? This story really does explore the whole notion. You know, I'm going to rephrase that sentence. This story really does address the notion of what you want out of life versus what you think you want out of life and maybe even versus what you can actually get out of life and those are those are notions that are are core to the human experience we all have things that we want our life to be doing and we probably have ways that we wished things had gone or at least we think we wished they had gone that way so you have a lot of characters getting those life dreams come true Peter Parker makes it big. Carol Danvers becomes an amazing superhero. Jessica Drew is, is, is a high-ranking agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. There's lots of stuff that people are getting that is really important to them. And Kitty Pryde just gets to be an adult and have a really good influence on kids. And apparently Doctor Strange never wanted to be a surgeon. He wanted to be a psychiatrist. Yeah. Okay. I don't think that jives with Strange Tales 116, but okay. <laughs> Or whatever the issue number was that had his origin in it. Yeah. And the Robert Reynolds Century still wants to be a screw-up. Wow. Maybe he just doesn't know how to be anything else since he's really the void and trying to take over the world. Yeah. So that's, again, it comes back to the issues I have with this. It's It says this is what Wanda gave them, except for this guy and this guy and this guy. It, it, yeah. Uh, you're right. It only works for the uh, the characters who are important to the story. Yeah. I mean, look at Toad has always wanted to be the leader. He was Magneto's lackey for a while, but then his internal thoughts, he wanted to take over. He 
I would swear that Toad was originally modeled on Caliban from Shakespeare's Tempest. You know, I, I believe that that's the relationship dynamic that Lee and Kirby had in mind when, when they started scripting Toad and, and drawing his stuff. And now he's an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. working for Wolverine? Maybe Wolverine's a better master for him to be a sycophant, too. I don't know. You know, he's not a, Toad's not a sycophant anymore, but yeah, I, I, I would believe that Wolverine is a better leader and a more fair leader than Magneto. We've got Mystique here, but... And the life she's always going to have is is, uh, is Boink and Wolverine. Yep. Except As for the fact that she's not straight. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe she's she's pretty fluid, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, I, and again, I can I can see her wanting to be a super spy. Mm-hmm. That's a great fit for her powers. It's basically what she wanted to do, but without having to be on the run and, and duck undercover, because that's kind of done for her to some degree. So, I mean, Mystique mostly fits, but there's others that just... Yeah, as I said, it, Steve Rogers was chosen to be the recipient of the Super Soldier Serum because he wanted to make a difference. Which really makes me want to go back and reread his issue because now I'm really curious to see how. Because you're right, he really did. So what happened in his life so that he didn't? We know the House of Magnus stuff yeah. didn't even happen until later. Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, is this just purely a matter of, you know, maybe he got what he wanted in that there was no World War II? Maybe that was it. I don't know. So, like I said, it addresses this issue. I took back the word explorers because, as often happens with a story like this, the spine backbone miniseries really only touches these things on a surface level, except for a lot of emotion from from Peter in the in the aftermath. We don't actually see a lot of what you know these things have done for them, except on surface level. You have to go and find all of the miniseries and stuff to to explore some of those characters further. But but it is it is a question of humanity that that gets brought up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly it's yeah not just what do you want, what you should do to get it, but is it worth it if it hurts others? Right. Because to me, if anything, that's what the Scarlet Witch has learned. It's okay, leave the rest of the world alone, just fix me. Aside from having wiped out almost all mutants again, except a chosen few. Right. It's I'm okay with her leaving a few mutants behind. I know a lot of fans were upset that you know well why is it all the major ones. Well, it's because it was Wanda's choice when Wanda was rewriting reality, and it's the characters that she knows and cares about. You know, the ones that she says, well, no, it is, the world is better if Cyclops has his powers. The world is better if Wolverine has his powers, right? So I can see her leaving them alone. It doesn't explain why so many villains that she's had to cope with kept their powers. It doesn't explain why Iceman lost his. I'm okay with that to a large extent, because at the end of the day, this is a publishing initiative. We have to have characters. So as long as it hits a few of the major characters, I'm okay. Although that has to come with a caveat that almost immediately the fact that this had affected Bobby Drake and Magneto began to be undone. Yeah. I mean, if we're looking at the books that came after it that had a lasting impact on it, I would say Miss Marvel and what it did with Carol Danvers. I would say Wolverine Origins lasted 50 issues. That's longer than than most you know, there's the 198 banner for a while with some issues. Uh, the other one would be that 20-issue New Warriors series that was just depowered mutants after M-Day who are now still trying to be superheroes, but using technology instead. So that's it. Now, I don't know, going through why it landed in the rankings, I mean, as I said, some of my personal bias may have impacted how much I enjoyed it, because I was going in, as I said, not ex- looking for a great story, because this struck me as the kind of story that wouldn't appeal to me. I went in to read something that mattered to continuity, and there were a few specific moments that I was had already been, you know, fully briefed on through recaps that mattered for continuity, and a lot of the rest didn't. So 
it's entirely possible I would have enjoyed it more had I come in with a more fair mindset, because it's quite possible I was expecting to read something that this wasn't, and which marketing never promised it would be, aside from these few events. So, you know, if you came in just saying, well, here's the next story in the publication order, as you did, I could see you enjoying it a lot more because you don't have that same level of expectation and you're not looking for the same thing I was looking for. Right. But I think that I think just the fact that it had so many tie-ins and that it had so many tie-ins that came in after the fact based on reader response and, and appeal, that this did draw a lot of interest. And it's, I mean, a, a, a significant portion of these stories on this list are there because of when this this list was made. The fact that this list was made in 2014 means that the, the titles on there are going to be different than if it were made in 2000. Four or 2024, because the readers of 2014 have certain stories in the back of their minds that are really major and important, and you know, for for probably many of them, good. Mm -hmm. So it's would this still make the list ten years from now or twenty years from now? I don't know. I like it. I like it a lot. Is it one of Marvel's 75 greatest things ever done? I don't know, but it feels really important right now. It does until we start getting a lot of mutants popping up. I mean, without this, the there were you know three major X Men story arcs in this. You know, with the Messiah War, Messiah Complex, a lot of these introducing hope. We wouldn't have had AVX that we spoke about without this story. Yeah, that's that's the thing that was uh, why I wanted to bring in the end of the series is because you know this is a two thousand five series that set up a two thousand thirteen or fourteen huge Marvel changing forever event. So it's, and it's one of those things that played out for a really long time with the, the importance of hope and everything else. Uh, hope summers, not, you know, just the emotion. So yeah, that's, that's another place that its impact is felt. And I don't, I don't know when we're going to stop getting stories that on some degree or another are fed out of these events. Yeah. The way Marvel and probably, you know, possibly to a greater extent, DC seemed to work is, you know, major event to major event. If you read any Marvel comic in the last 10 years, odds are very good that you can read that comment or that comic without checking the publication date and say, this must have been published between event miniseries A and event miniseries B, because they do tend to have status quo changes with these, which means that all the events matter to some degree, at least until the next event comes. So I think... Odds are very good that until we have a change in the editorial mindset, which I don't think is coming anytime soon, because this is working really well for them right now in terms of sales, that, you know, this is always going to be important to some degree. The question is, how many links back on the chain do you need to trace it before you come back to this story? That's true. Right. Because you can have stories that you say, yeah, that's a direct outcome of AVX, which means it's an indirect outcome of this. I might contrast that with Secret Invasion, which, you know, is a link on a chain, but I don't really feel like we are in the middle. I don't really feel like there's anything in the in the Marvel universe right now that says it's because the scrolls invaded and Northern Osborn took over. You know, to to contrast the two. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's true. But there's I've got a theory about the Ghost Rider titles that were published at the same time. <laughs> okay, we can, I don't know if you've heard that, but we can talk about that probably when Secret Invasion comes. Hey, in. all right. So I think I mean it's not an unenjoyable story. What we have here is a story that largely takes place in an alternate universe. And much with Bendis' same Age of Ultron, which didn't start in an alternate universe, but alternate universes play a big part of it, and the 
Marvel 616 gets rewritten in the past so that that version of it never existed. But anytime you have a story that largely takes place in an alternate universe, what I find is that there's some fans who dig right in and love it. And there's some fans who go, okay, I'll come back when it's done. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, there's some alternate universes I love. One of my favorite X titles from the early 2000s was Exiles. Judd Winnick's Exiles is, I think, one of the best X books ever published. Right. But one of the one of the appeals of that is the constant change and the constant shifting. Yeah. You're not investing in an alternate universe that you must understand for the for the ongoing narrative. You're just enjoying the 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 world hopping. Yeah, the versions of the characters that you see in issue one are the same as those versions of the characters that you see by the end, assuming they haven't been killed along the way for the most part. Right. I could think of one exception, but I don't want to spoil it. For those listening who aren't familiar with Exiles, think Sliders plus Quantum Leap set in the Marvel Universe. Yes. Yes. That that's essentially the concept of the book. And the Judd Winnick portion is fantastic. There's good stuff that follows him. There's debate about how good. <laughs> I would certainly recommend Tony Bedard. Chuck Austin is hit and miss. But in any event, this is not the Exiles podcast. Although it could be in another universe. Sorry, that was that was terrible. I'll, I withdraw the joke. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Yeah, well, that's okay. You know what? I I actually made a mistake earlier. It's I haven't read just the Hulk, Pulse, and... Captain America issues. I've also read Exiles 69 through 71, which tied in with this. Oh, very good. I have read some Exiles. I really enjoyed what I read. I want to read more. And now that I'm getting a lot more X-Men under my belt, I'm looking forward to reading more, a lot more than I was, you know, five years ago. In any event, I think for why it landed at this point in the rankings, I don't think it's here because of the message, right? It's not so much a message book. It's here because it had a big impact on continuity and because there's at least a a fairly large segment of the population that enjoyed it a lot more than I did. <laughs> that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. So just to wrap up, I'd like to thank John again for joining us. Thank you again for having me. I look forward to being back for more cataclysmic fun whenever a certain planet eater gets hungry. Yep. So that's something that our listeners can look forward to in two or three weeks time. Next week, however, we're going to be looking at the death of Captain Marvel which was reprinted in Death of Captain Marvel. Oddly enough, it was originally published as Marvel Graphic Novel number one. It's also been reprinted in Life and Death of Captain Marvel, and it's available on Marvel Digital Unlimited and Comixology. I have vowed never to read this book until I finish reading all the Bronze Age Captain Marvel, which I'm working on actively right now. Oh, very much so. In fact, why don't we use that as the plug this week? Okay. So feel free to rate this show and anything else you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you use. It really does help the shows get noticed. You can share the show with friends who you think may enjoy it and come join our Facebook discussion group. And finally, thank you for listening. In February 2014, a new podcast dedicated to the Marvel Comics character, Adam Warlock, debuted. And the internet broke in half. Well, not really. Far from it, to be honest. But a few of you actually noticed, and we thank you for that. Over the course of 2014... We covered all of Adam's Silver Age adventures and have started on his Bronze Age solo series, as well as his current appearance in two Thanos specials. But it's time for a change. So I'm sad to announce that episode 20 will be the last episode of Resurrections and Adam Warlock podcast. However, I am pleased to announce that in 2015, we will premiere the first episode, which we will call episode 21 of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast 
Yes, the show is continuing, but now with more Thanos. Each month we will have John M. Wilson on as we cover an issue of Warlock, and the other episode of the month, we will continue to have Brian Zeno on to cover Thanos' appearances, starting with Captain Marvel 25. So join us in 2015 for Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Now with 20% more Thanos.